Welcome to Secret Sauce for Success, show number 24. Hi, everybody. You have tuned in to the Secret Sauce for Success show, where we strive to find the secret ingredients that lead to success. We interview successful guests every week and learn their secret to their success. We sincerely hope you implement these habits into your life and become the best you that you can be. Enjoy the show. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Rick Stahl, host of the Secret Sauce for Success show, live from Colorado, here with my co-host, Doug Kirstein. What is going on, Doug? Oh, Rick, man, what is not going on? That's the question. So, yeah, I mean, the year is going by. I can't believe that it's going to be October in just a little over a week. You know, things are cranking along. Pretty soon it'll be Christmas in 2023. Got the midterm elections coming up. You can't turn on the TV or the radio or walk out of your house without hearing about it. You and I have a couple of flips that we're working on. Yeah, give us the status. About our first one here about four months back. Uh, We've run into some headwinds on this thing, both in terms of increasing costs, which have been uh, obviously an unfortunate part of doing any kind of business. Because of why? Well, because of inflation, really. Inflation is part of it, driving the price of things up. And that's such a compounded problem. It's not just the price of a two by four went from $2.50 to $4. It's that the gas to, to bring it, to put the, in the trucks, to transport it, right? That has gone up. The cost of the, the labor at the uh, mill to make the two by four has gone up. The cost of electricity at the mill has gone up, everything. So it's all driving this. And then the supply of two by fours and the supply of so many different things is down because the supply chains are messed up. The demand, the ongoing demand for these goods and the now short amount of these goods has caused even greater levels of inflation. So yes, prices are high, but I think the biggest problem that we face here in the, in the future on a just a larger overall economic basis is the fact that the supply chain is so messed up and our inept leaders can't seem to get their heads around it and figure out what to do about it. That's going to leave us all in a pretty bad spot. Two by fours are one thing, but wait till you can't find food for your family that's a, an unforeseen problem. We knew there was going to be some inflation, but I never dreamed that we would see 9%. That's just an incredible number. Right. It really is. You know, so where are we at with the flip though? Well, the flip is coming along. We're having some trouble, not only with just the price of the goods that we're uh, buying, but also the availability of labor. You know, that's another shortage that we have to deal with. And so we've been dealing with, we were delayed by the electrician, couldn't get there when we thought he could. It was a couple of weeks to get that done. And then now we most recently are having trouble with plumbers where we had a trouble booking one. And in a fluke, our plumber broke his foot. And so now uh, we're kind of back at square one. We've got to go back and find a plumber, somebody who can get out to the property. So I just found out about that. Uh, today, in fact. And so I will have to get on the phone tomorrow and start calling around and see if I can find a plumber. But overall, it's coming along. We're almost done. Uh, We've got the kitchen kind of put together and uh, some appliances, another supply chain issue. Once those are in, the place is pretty much ready to go. Hopefully freed up and on to the next one, right? Sold Mm -hmm. on to the next one. Right. Yeah. So, I, you know, just from a number point of view, just to give the audience what we're trying to do is we are trying to get like 30k of profit. That that is our our operating you know model that we're trying to hit, and I think it's dropped down with like you said all the extra costs. I think we're going to be dropped down to 25k. So at at this point, so we'll see how it all wraps up, and we'll we'll give the the listeners you know the 
be transparent with the numbers and see how we did. I think we'll do fairly well on it. It's a nice place and it's going to be fairly reasonably priced, I think, when we go to sell it. But we'll see what the rest of the market looks like, uh, what the uh, you know what the inventory looks like and where interest rates are. Fed just hit us with another three quarter point rate increase and uh, the market didn't like it. And buyers aren't going to like that either. But, you know, when I was in the mortgage business, I may have told this story on here and may have told it to you uh, off the air as well. But um, when I was in the mortgage business, if we saw an uptick in rates, the phones would stop ringing for a few days. And all we'd do is throw our golf clubs in the back of the car and, and go play golf. And then when we'd come back, you know, people would kind of start warming up to the new rates and they'd start kind of feeling comfortable with that. And the phone would start ringing again. People don't like to see the rates go up but even more so they don't like to stop the things that they're doing. So it might right. give them pause, but unless you are at a kind of a financial hard stop where my interest rate is such that it allows me to afford the house, if it goes up a quarter point, I just can't make it work. Barring that kind of a discussion, people might have to grit their teeth and use a few words that are unpleasant under their breath. But um, overall, yeah, you like the house, you want to buy the house, you pay the higher rate, and that's just the way it's got to be. And part of our business model is we're choosing, purposely choosing uh, more affordable priced homes in, right. in the face of these headwinds, right? Right. Right. And with doing that, what generally happens is you have houses that are priced a certain way. And then when those prices start to go up, people just start looking at different sizes and different options in houses. A couple might be looking at three bed, one bath houses. They might look at a two bed, one bath to make it a little bit less expensive. And that just means that a different group of people is now looking at our house, not necessarily fewer people. So uh, there's definitely some economic consideration in that. And then can you give us a little uh, status on the fix and flip number two? Yes, indeed. New news for those of you who follow our saga here in in Pueblo, we bought a second flip here a few weeks back and uh, getting started with that. That's interesting because that really is starting over. We went down there and uh, walked through it. And it turns out that it didn't have meters for electricity or gas, but it looks like there is a meter in there for the water. So we had a water meter in, but no electrical meter, have to get the county involved. Usually with flips like this, if we're not doing anything significant, we don't need to pull a permit and we avoid um, putting ourselves in a position whenever we can that we need a permit, right? And so we uh, are forced in this case to get the county involved and to get inspectors out there. So we're working on getting those those utilities put together and the, and the utilities back on so we can get the house and, and really start the aggressive work on it. I was really surprised that, you know, after finding out that there was no utilities on the place for eight years, a couple spiders, a uh, couple, you know, mouse, dropping that's about it right. it looked like it just yeah. just sitting there for eight years you know right right i mean we would think with eight years worth it it looked like that cave that indiana jones was crawling through in his first movie you know right <laughs> you got cobwebs everywhere maybe a few skeletons laying around but no that wasn't the case it was uh it was in in really what i would consider to be fairly rough shape but not bad shape just unclean right dirty and kind of dumpy and needed to be updated so yeah, yeah. interesting and we got a good deal on it right we did we got a good deal on it and uh, what was it the 912 square feet two and two and one and paid seventy thousand. so not bad yeah i think it's a three and one right if we can you know finish converting so, that one bedroom right it's a two and one to start but there's a third bedroom that was added 
and uh, we'll see if we can count that as a bedroom. So I think right. we would be able to, but yeah, it's uh, it's a little sketchy, but that's the way these things are. You know, every every flipper I've ever known, every TV show I've ever watched about it, the, the mantra is the rougher the house, the bigger the profit, right? So yeah, you got to put a lot of work into it, but you make money when you buy, not when you sell. So if you're buying the worst property, you're buying it for the best cost. Yeah, well, we got a pretty good deal. 70K. It's hard to touch anything for 70K anymore. Right. I mean, in Denver, you can't pay rent for 70K a year. <laughs> right. So, right. Right. Jeez. So right. anyway, yeah, that's good. And so we're moving along with that. So it's really excited to see how the first one turns out and uh, how we can apply the lessons learned in this first one to this second one. Yeah. And again, once, you know, my version, my vision of how the future should roll out here, once we prove this system over and over and really get a, you know, dial in the numbers and, you know, make sure it's repeatable. I wouldn't mind reaching out to these people listening on our podcast and say, hey, do you want to be a silent investor? Come on with Doug and I on our adventure and make some money with us. Right. Right. Be part of the Secret Sauce for Success team. Yeah. Yeah. Podcast plus. <laughs> right yeah right so yeah that's that's excellent i mean it's really fun it's really it's really been uh, exciting and uh, i haven't felt i think this positive and this excited about something for a while so it's, Good. it's awesome okay hey do you have a uh, quote of the week i have known this quote for some time this is from ralph, ralph waldo emerson but as those of you who are listening to this will soon find out this uh, really is very applicable to the gentleman with whom we spoke this evening. It says, nothing astonishes men so much as common sense and plain dealing. We have tonight a guest by the name of John Stegge. Yeah. And uh, John is a fascinating guy. He's been a lawyer for quite a while. He is a very sharp, very smart guy. And his website is The Compassionate Lawyer. And this really ties in with his overall philosophy. All right. Well, let's get talking to John Stegge, man with common sense. Uh, today, we have a special guest, John Stegge, uh, the, com- the compassionate lawyer. Well, that's my uh, website address, www.compassionatelawyer.com. So, yeah, that's kind of like been my MO for a long time. So John and, and I met at a, a real estate meetup here in South Denver, see each other at all these meetups and uh, thought you'd be a great guest to have on the show. Well, thanks a lot, Rick. And thanks, Doug, for inviting me on. And I look forward to it. Yeah, we're looking forward to hear more about, especially this compassionate lawyer uh, business. So we often think of lawyers as being cold and calculating. So this yeah, really aren't they all? But, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> the, the opposite of the way I wanted to present myself. Because um, that's exactly the image that people have of attorneys as being like, um, they're both basically like the strong arm or the bulldog. Right. <laughs> Frank Azar. Yes. <laughs> right. Right. Everybody knows that guy. So how about, can you go back to the beginning and uh, what, what, how did you get your start? Okay. um, Actually graduated from Denver University College of Law in 1990. Uh, Used to clerk for an appellate judge at the Court of Appeals for a couple of years. And then have been in independent practice really since then, uh, since the early nineties. And 
I, my early days, I used to do just about anything. And I always thought I'd end up in litigation, but the judge actually I worked for used to tell me, you know, I don't think you're really cut out for that kind of work. And I was actually really kind of offended at the time, but he knew me better than I did apparently because he was right. I just never enjoyed the confrontation of it. And so when a client of mine happened to be in real estate, this is in the late nineties, I did some appellate litigation, um, worked on some clean water act citizen suits for the Sierra club and did a bunch of different stuff. Um, some bad faith insurance litigation, appellate mostly. Then I got this client who was doing, um, and he kind of taught me some things about real estate and we did real estate development law. And I started learning about how to do some of that stuff. Like if you have a multifamily um, split out the units and um, come up with approvals and uh, get the, get the homeowners association started and the bylaws and minutes and set up the HOAs and all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of where I got my start with it. And after a while, I just started rolling with it. And I realized I don't like litigating at all. I don't like the adversarial aspect of it. I'm not cut out for it. It always was highly stressful. I just want less unhappiness and stress in my life. I like clients that are happy when I'm finished. And I feel like I've provided real value to them. And I feel like I've helped them and protected them and not like just giving them something, you know, like in litigation, like one way one, you know, so that's kind of my thing is is non-confrontational law approach. So I'm more defending or I don't have to litigate Rick and I don't do that. So I just get out of having to be in confrontations. And what I'm doing is advising people in all aspects of real estate and real estate development, because I really like that doing acquisitions, doing real estate deals, doing securities law for investors, um, helping set up syndications, helping people do their incorporations. And then I started realizing from my own background, what would I do if I'm representing the investors to protect them from litigation? What would make it difficult for people to collect against them when they're setting up their business? So that's kind of what I do is I develop asset protection strategies for small businesses and for uh, especially for real estate investors. Um, and I advise them, how do I set up my, my partnerships to protect me? How do I deal with potential conflicts in partnership? Um, how do I analyze what kind of risk I'm facing in, in, in doing a certain type of investment? What's the best strategy? Should I? And then working to integrate their estate planning, for example, they may have wills and trusts and succession planning for their business. All of those things are whole, what I call whole life planning, uh, business planning, estate planning, and corporate protection and helping them with their investment strategy to realize whatever their strategy is. I don't tell them what it is, but I can help them set up a corporate structure that meets that need. And then I can analyze like what kind of, how, what level of complexity is this business? Who's involved in it? What's the nature of their investment? Um, how are they going to run it? What are they trying to, to accomplish? And then come up with a strategy that's basically met meeting their needs. And it can be everything from um, the simplest strategy, which is like, you know, you've got a husband and wife that are maybe house hacking. 
and they may want to put their property into an LLC, but they don't really need a partnership agreement. You don't need a lot of stuff from that, that level of complexity all the way up to uh, much more complex, multi-million dollar uh, investor strategies. So with multi-tiers, some, some invest, equity investments, some are, they're investing money and getting a note back in a secured position and so on. So, so it, it sounds like they could go to Doug first to get, you know, financial advice yeah. on how to become a millionaire. Then yeah. they go to you and how to protect it. Right. Or how to develop. Um, a lot of my, my uh, clients are startups. Um, they're people that are just getting into it. And I advise them on like what the, what the risks are and how to, how to meet it. What kind of asset protection strategy makes sense for them. And because there's so much, so much litigation and so much potential conflict in people's partnerships arrangements. If you've got investors working together, it's usually a really great idea to have a partner, but then at the same time, there's, there's debt, disability, divorce, there's creditor claims against the partner. There's all kinds of issues that can arise. There's securities law issues. If you've got investors that are passive investors, what are the issues there? You, you got to have some exemption from registration if you're just raising capital to do a deal. So, right. Like Doug and I are, you know, doing some fix and flips in uh, Pueblo. And <laughs> at, at some point, we're going to be probably asking friends and family, maybe some other strangers yeah. out on this podcast for, hey, if you want to join us on our adventure, feel free to join us. And I think at that point, we need to come to you. Yeah. And, and get something going. Right. Right. Exactly. And then, so you can analyze that from a point of view of what are we trying to accomplish? How much capital are we trying to raise? What's the nature of our investment? How long is it going to be? For example, are we going to have, how long is it going to, are we going to be locked into this investment before we could possibly realize profits? What if things don't go exactly the way we plan, how we handle that potential for disputes, what if somebody has a, has a change in their needs? For example, they need to um, you know, get out because they've got some kind of family emergency. They need cash or whatever it is. So you have to plan for all those things. And so what you do is you create a business plan, which you normally would do anyway, before you get into an investment, you have a, a strategy. We're going to flip it or we're going to buy and hold it or whatever we're going to do. And then you just work that into the business model, like you put that into an LLC operating agreement and make it so that each of the partners signs off on it. So that way you've got some agreement going in because a lot of the potential for problems down the line is because the investors that got into a deal didn't realize that they had different expectations. And so you can be years into a project with a partner and never realize one guy says, oh, well, I always intended after five years that we'd sell out and, you know, take the money and split it up. And the other is like, no, I always thought we'd keep it for life. And the third guy is like, I always wanted to retire and turn my interest over to my son, let him have it. And then it's like, well, I never intended to be in business with your son. Um, mm. So there's an issue. So we've got all these things where you didn't, you plan for making money, but you didn't plan for like, what are we going to do if we're successful? Um, and what happens if along the way we decide that there's a change in expectations or we, the original strategy wasn't going to work. So we now have to come up with a new strategy. And what if there's not agreement as to what that is? So you have to figure out how you handle all those potential issues before you get into it. Because once there's disagreement, 
you're not going to get anybody to to agree down the line. So in any marriage, for example, you know, once you've got marital issues, it's kind of harder to resolve than if you've started out and talk your way through things beforehand. So that's the idea that you just put all this stuff in writing. It's kind of like what I call a, a business prenup. <laughs> sort of like a prenuptial agreement for your business. You go into it knowing what the known risks are. Everybody's on board with what the plan is. Everybody's on in agreement as to what we're going to do, how we're going to get there. What's our like price points if we're going to sell? What's our goal? What's our long-term strategy? How long is it going to take to be profitable? Where's our budget and performa? The kind of things that you probably informally think about before you make an investment. Like how much money am I going to get if I sell this? What's the cost of rehab? How are we going to finance this? Um, is the debt going to be recourse or non-recourse to the partners? So all those things you can work into an agreement. So like what happens if we need more capital? Do we have the resources? What if one of the partners has um, more capital than the other? So they can now take a look at that and say, well, what happens if one of these guys is deeper pockets? Well, um, we can analyze that and say, okay, um, that might adjust the capital account structure. So we can plan for that. Well, we'll have uh, capital calls, but that will affect the earning ratios or that'll affect the ownership ratios, or maybe it won't. Maybe we'll decide that that person is going to actually just get a, a working capital note. And then on a distribution, they'll get paid off before any other investor. So there's all kinds of ways to structure things however you want. Um, you just have to be aware. And so that's kind of what I do is in planning. I just outlined some of those kinds of issues that arise with investors. I think that making these decisions consciously and upfront just analyzes and, and mitigates a lot of the potential for conflict and known risk. So you can actually make things go smoothly as long as everybody understands what the risks were going in and they've all got an agreement as to how we're going to handle it if we if we're moving forward and if, what happens if our expectations aren't met or we for example if we've done uh we got a flip and now the market changes and we can't profitably flip at the rate that we expected are we going to be able to refinance and do a buy and hold we might want to put that in our business model and build in some some analysis of like, are we going to be able to do that? Are we going to be able to refinance? And if not, what do we do? Well, do we just take a bath on it and get our money out and try something else? Or do we buy and hold and long-term strategize? Um, so there's all these different kinds of, in, of factors that go into it. So all, what I do is try to sit down with the investors, get the business plan from them, get them to work out what their expectations are, work that up, put that into the operating agreement as part of a partnership agreement, and then integrate all that into your operating agreement and everyone adopts it. And once you've done that, then basically you've got a template for your business going forward that you can use as an enforceable part of your agreement. And I think that, that my approach is a lot different from what a lot of attorneys do, because what a lot of lawyers do is they just try to build flexibility into their agreements. And they just try to make it so that if um, their partners want to change things, they just do it. If they want to do go and zig, they can zig. If they want to zag, they can zag. That's all great as long as you've got agreement, but it doesn't 
uncover the areas of hidden disagreement. And that's basically what I'm trying to do. That's where the compassionate lawyer aspect of it comes in because I'm trying to help them analyze areas where there might not be agreement or there might be a potential for conflict that we can figure out now because everyone has goodwill. But in the future, when there's conflicts, people get all upset and there's a lot of money at stake. And it's like, I never loved you anyway. You know, <laughs> now I hate you. I, you know, I want my money back. Hmm. Well, we're in the middle of a three-year investment window. You can't get your money back. You know, you kind of want to have those ideas up in front up now before you get into this. So my I never would have thought to, that you can capture all of the forward thinking problems, you know, there's going to be more, right? A tornado comes through. You can't think of everything, but I think it's worthwhile to do what you're doing and try to rough it in and the best you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, unforeseen acts of God, like a tornado, you probably have insurance for that. Things like partnership disagreement, death, disability. What happens if there's a creditor claim against one of your partners? That could mess up your business. Suddenly that their end of the business is seized by a creditor and a judgment. All it could take is like a, an accident, right? Now there's a million dollar claim against your partner. How are you going to handle that How, without destroying your business? Well, there has to be provisions in the operating agreement to handle that. If someone dies, how do we handle the succession? Partner just passes away. And now I don't want to be in a probate for two years and then have it all passed on to their heirs who were 17 or 21 years old. And those are not my ideal business partners. The problem is that you have to anticipate some of these things. So it really, the more planning that the clients will let me do, the sit down with them and work through things, the better it works out. Because the more I can analyze these ideas, I can put things in, I can create a trust, I can create a a business model that with an LLC or a partnership agreement or something that will reflect what they want and make things a lot smoother. So that's basically my whole approach to things is um, it's better to negotiate than to litigate. And so if you can analyze a structure and figure out in advance what some of the known risks are and how to mitigate those, that's the ideal structure. And I've been talking about internal potential issues with partners, but of course there's the external threats as well. Um, Whenever you're investing, there's all kinds of things, everything from construction defect litigation to uh, trespass claims from your neighbors, water, intrusion, mold, whatever, landlord tenant issues, zoning issues, whatever it is. Um, So you kind of want to do cost segregation of your asset. So if you've got your own personal assets and your own business assets, you want to keep those things separate as possible and provide as much maximum asset protection as you can. I talk about, you know, creating an asset protection structure with limited liability companies or sub S company corporation, whatever is the most sense for the, for the particular uh, business and the tax situation that they're in as well. So you analyze all of that. And in in an ongoing manner, you can help them to achieve their goals. And that's my idea. So we were talking yesterday about different people, maybe, you know, like, let's say, pretend me and Doug for our flipping thing in Pueblo. So at some point, let's say we raise some money and we have these silent partners out there. You know, I think we talked about voting rights. What voting rights do they have? Let's say 
Doug and I really want to put shag carpeting on the walls. And we think that's going to, we're going to do a Elvis Presley lookalike house. Yeah. But, and, but our investors are like, no, we don't want that. I mean, yeah, that you can't let you, I mean, it kind of depends on whether you want partners or investors. The partners are people that are going to participate in the management of the company. The investors are people that want to invest with you and get a fixed return or they want to get a profits interest. Those are different animals. A partner is somebody that you want to come in and help you run the business. And usually that's because you've got some kind of some expertise that you're going to contribute. It's either going to be capital. It's going to be experience in selling a piece of property. It's going to be construction, whatever it's going to be. Then that person contributes to the partnership. At that point, those are the people that you have running your business. If you've got passive investors, you don't want them each having a determination. If you want, if you've got a, a business model that says we're going to put in a certain kind of tile, you don't want to have to run it by five or six other people to get the approval to do all this stuff. So the way that you analyze that is how many people do I actually want in my business versus people that I want associated with my business and maybe helping me raise the money for it. And then I get, they might either just loan me the money, might be a hard money loan, or they might be investors and they get a profits interest. You can have multiple classes of stocks, some voting, non-voting. Some of them are preferred, some of them are not preferred. Um, you can you can structure this however you want. And the way you can do it is to maintain the, the control. The, like for example, class A voting stock can be the management. Class B is preferred class for profits distribution um, and that sort of thing. You can do all those kind of things. You have to be wary of securities law issues whenever you're raising capital like that. Um, and we talked briefly about that. And I'm not going to get into a heavy securities law issue. I'm mostly a real estate lawyer, but I have some understanding. And so we can do simple, simple analysis of what do we actually need to do if you've got investors coming in? How many are we going to have? How much money are we going to raise? Is it really worth doing it this way? Or would you really rather um, just go out and get hard money? If you, you know, there's, there's pluses and minuses. You get hard money. Obviously you got an interest rate. You got to pay, you get investors in, you don't have to pay the interest, uh, but you're going to have to pay them a percentage that the hard money might be harder to negotiate after a year, year and a half, they kind of want their money back. So that might be more appropriate depending on your strategy, unless you've got an idea that you're going to get secure permanent financing. So then you kind of say, okay, I'm going to, in a year we've completed our project, our hard money will go away. We'll pay that out and we get permanent financing. Well, that's great. Um, you might be able to do that or you might not, depending on the investor climate. I had clients in 2009 that were going to do that and they got wiped out. A lot of my clients that I was doing a lot of business with at that point, because the banks all suddenly said, we're not doing any permanent financing on these deals. And so they got foreclosed at it. Some really, some really great deals. Um, I mean, guys, they would have made millions and this is in 2009 um, and they got wiped, you know, doing a 30 unit development, things like that. You got to be careful and have it your understanding of what your what your investment climate is as well. Um, and so we're heading into an age of uncertainty. So you kind of want to think about uh, where you're standing and maybe, and I also help clients that way. For example, to get introductions to other people that might maybe have capital and they're looking for deals. 
or they've got deals and they they're looking for people that want to do the construction or and get a piece of the investment that way so people helping helping other people to to achieve their goals you know bringing some people in to do partnerships i think that's a useful strategy honestly um, but the thing is, of course, you have to understand who the people you're you're getting into the deal with and whether they're equitable or not, you know, where they're going to work with you or whether they're going to cause problems. So that's be that's, kind of fun as, a, you know, just an adventure. Right. I, uh, one of the things I always like, you know, is it a, is it an adventure? And, and hey, do you want to bring some other people along? It's I, it's I, good to have friends that you can do business with, but you also have to be careful who you're doing the business with. Because it can get very sticky quickly if things don't go right and you don't have the right people, but also you know, have to develop a business model that everybody's comfortable with. Right. And that's kind of back to where I'm comfortable um, and try to get all of these decisions to be made consciously rather than unconsciously so that people five, you know, a year or two years down the line suddenly realize that they probably shouldn't have done a deal together in the first place they had different goals and expectations right you know so let's take a break and hear a word from our sponsor here at stall realty you are number one i'm a realtor with HomeSmart, and my job is to make sure you are satisfied here is what one satisfied client of stall realty had to say rick stall was an awesome asset in helping our family find a home that checks all our boxes he is patient and committed i would recommend calling upon his services one of my favorite mottos is making milestones memorable. Buying or selling a house can be overwhelming, but with my guidance and expertise, I can make this process as smooth as possible. I can be reached via email at stylerealty at gmail.com or text call me at 720-429-3303. I look forward to hearing from you. And now, back to our show. Just in listening here, it's fascinating. Uh, I know... Uh, a little something about some of the legal ramifications as well through study and, and that sort of thing, certainly not qualified to be a lawyer, but I'm wondering when you're talking to, to smaller investors who are getting started, you said that most of your clients are, are kind of just beginning, right? Just getting things put together. A lot of them are, because I go to meetups like the one that I, where I met you, Rick, and I meet people that are at different stages, everything from I'm going to buy an $11 million resort down to we're going to do, um, I'm, we're a married couple and we're just going to buy our first, maybe flip it, but we're actually just going to house hack it and then live in it, get a personal loan, turn around and flip that into something bigger. Everything in, in between, really. What do you find is, is kind of the most common either misconception or overlooked aspect of putting something like that together for people who are just getting involved? Um, I suspect that people don't realize the legal aspect of the planning because it's mostly people become educated about real estate in terms of the, what is am I going to invest? What's my cost? And what's my, um, what's my rehab costs? And what am I going to, what's, what am I going to do? I'm going to flip it or I'm going to buy and hold it and rent it. What, you know, A, B and B it, whatever the deal is. But what they never think about is if I'm going to build a portfolio of these properties and not just have one little 
thing that I'm doing, what kind of a legal structure would, I, would protect me the best? And so that's kind of what I look at. It's like, okay, you've got three properties. Maybe we want a Delaware holding entity to hold one of them, hold them all together. That provides a wall of protection in between all these different entities so that there's not a common liability. You don't put all your Easter eggs in one basket. And so that's kind of the idea. If something goes wrong with one property, you really don't want that to infect the rest of your life. And so right. the idea that I preach to, especially the young people, and especially to people that are starting out is like, make sure that you're doing things the right way. Make sure that you're not doing business in your own name. Make sure you've got your corporate structure set up. Make sure that you've got a, a taxpayer ID number. You've got your separate bank accounts. Keep all your books and records separate. Do everything that would make plaintiff's lawyers unhappy if they're trying to pierce the corporate veil and attach your personal assets or pierce through and grab other, other investment port assets that you've got. So you segregate all these different assets into different boxes. The way I look at it, um, the whole organizational structure is like having a series of little fireproof safes and a hand grenade might go off in one of them, but you don't want the hand grenade to go off in the room and blow everything. That's kind of the, the risk analysis that you do. Um, and so also, how many business deals am I going to do? Am I going to do like three flips in a year? Or am I going to maybe do five buy and holds? Am I going to do a multifamily? How am I going to do all this? So that kind of enters into what the level of, of complexity determines what kind of organizational structure I would recommend that they get to. Um, the more more complex and a lot more money is involved, the, the more you need more of a robust structure. When you have someone with multiple properties, for example, Rick and I've got a couple of flips going right now. Mm -hmm. Do you generally recommend a separate, say, LLC or whatever your chosen corporate structure mm -hmm. is for each of those properties, like property 123 Main Street and 527 Third Street? You know, yeah, you can so. do that. I think it's ideal to do that. Um, some people want to put multiple properties in one because their accountants are going to create a new schedule for every, every separate LLC. Um, so they don't want to pay the extra tax fees, not extra taxes because it's all passed through, but right. extra tax preparation and also the books and records that you have to keep separate. So there's a limit. If you're a wholesaler, you're not going to set up an LLC for every deal that you do. Um, I actually, with wholesalers, do recommend, though, that they set up a new organization, maybe one on an annual basis or every couple of years, because if they're going to do 30 wholesales in a year or something, then, you know, you kind of want to limit the number of problems that you face with any one entity. But again, you know, they may not actually hold a lot of assets in those entities. It's just it kind of depends on your risk analysis and your risk tolerance as well. Um, the way I look at asset protection overall from an overarching viewpoint, it's very profitable. It's the best investment strategy, I think, that there is out there. You, it's, if you've been in it for the last 30 years, you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. There's no other asset that you can get leveraging like this. But at the same time, there's a risk. Um, so it's like um, playing Russian roulette with a pistol, I tell them where there's maybe a hundred chambers and only one bullet. So if you want to do business in your own name, it's click, 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 click. That's 5%. 
<laughs> right? You did five different deals and maybe there was only a 1% chance that anything is going to go wrong in any of them. But if something does, you really want a robust structure to protect you. Right. Because those lawyers are expensive that $10,000 a month is not unreasonable. $500 an hour for a litigation attorney. Um, and they'll be eating that up real quick. So, so speaking of it. cost, you know, how much does it cost? Let's say Doug and I come to you for some asset protection on these two flips, let's say. Well, my hourly rates are really low. I'm, I'm, I, I'm still billing at 250 bucks an hour as of now, right now in, in September, 2022, whenever you watch this, at some point, I'm probably going to raise my rates. <laughs> Everyone tells me I'm undervalued. You're giving your time away. Here. Giving my time away. I know. I do some flat fee work and, you know, setting up a partnership, something like that might be $1,500, $2,000 to do. And it's well worth it because the first month of litigation for two people, each of those lawyers is probably going to get 10 grand. That's an initial retainer and some of them may not even be refundable. So you'll be using that up before you can blink and you won't have actually accomplished anything. If you can avoid that, you could save yourself a lot of money. So just the possibility of setting things up in a way that will deter problems down the line. It's like having in fire insurance is what I look at it. I lived in a, in a brownstone Victorian back over in Capitol Hill. And that house, it was built in 1896 and never burnt down once. Was all the fire insurance that they had, casualty insurance, for a hundred years worth it or not from one way of looking at it if you had a magic eight ball and you could say magic eight ball will my house ever burn down no oh, i don't need insurance but the problem is you don't have a magic eight ball so having you know casualty insurance on your house is the only sensible thing to do right this is basically like insurance setting up your asset plan if you're just a homeowner you know fine but if you are an investor, if you are doing real estate for a business and you're expecting to make money at this, then you're a professional. And that means you need to treat this like every business. You don't think that Apple executives go home worrying about personal liability. There's never once been a piercing of the corporate veil um, and holding the officers and directors of some com multinational company personally liable. Why? Because they have corporate lawyers that handle all this stuff. And they do, they do business in a certain way. They got boards of directors and they have approval of all the corporate activity and they have minutes and they have um, annual meetings of the shareholders and they've got you know, books and records and bank accounts that are all separating their personal assets from their corporate assets. Well, because they do things in a certain way, that's the courts respect the boundary dividing between their personal and their corporate business. That's how you do things on a, you just shrink it all down and do it uh, at the individual level in the same fashion that you would if you were a, a multinational corporation, you just simplify and do the same idea, basically. It is a business. And if you look around town, okay, and you look at all those lawyers' billboards that say, you know, Shanker and Wanker and Bulldog, Joe Moore and, and all those guys, the strong arm and the Sawaya law firm and all these dudes, right? They have all these billboards. Those things cost tens of thousands of dollars a month. Their TV advertising is even more expensive. And the only reason that those guys are in business doing uh, what there's are personal injury claims. And they get 40, something like 40% of the claim. Why are they in business? Because the insurance company is not paying the claimant. 
they've made a business model to deny coverage. And so what they do is they say, well, we're going to do an analysis and see whether we can make more money telling this, this claimant, our, our customer to go, we're not going to pay you, or we'll offer you a small amount, or we'll try to argue with you. So it's worth actually litigating. And it turns out you actually get more money hiring a lawyer in those circumstances. So that's a situation that really surprised me when I, when I learned about it. And I realized, um, yeah, insurance is a great thing to have. And it's not that the insurance companies always deny the claim. Sometimes they just pass it a month. They sometimes just do it, pay it, but not always. And so you kind of have to have a strategy that also protects you in the case that maybe the company isn't going to, isn't going to be there and, and honor those claims. So you might end up with a liability that you didn't anticipate. And so at least you've segregated the risk into separate classes. So you don't actually have uh, multiple losses. Uh, so that's kind of the situation that, that I that I found interesting. It was a eye-opening experience doing this and seeing that they just took everything as like it wasn't any ethical stand that they were taking one way or another. They just it was just we did a cost-benefit analysis and we decided that it was cheaper to litigate this and deny the coverage. Wow! So wow, Very uh, good. unless you litigate it and are found that you have to pay the. The, yeah, the, and uh, then that they've now spent yeah, three right. years, and so they've had their money for three years, and they didn't pay for right. three years on a five hundred million thousand dollar claim, yeah. right? So this is mid nineties. I don't know what it would be today. Three times that. So they just decided they, you know, you got to use the money for three years. So, you know, right, <laughs> right. That was an interesting experience. So I realized, um, a, I don't like litigating. Uh, B, <laughs> right. Um, this is something that you sort of have to take into account. You may have a contract of insurance, but all that is, is a piece of paper. Maybe they'll pay it and maybe they won't. Um, so that's kind of the approach that you have to have. So, so client comes to me and says, well, you know, um, I've got insurance. I don't need an asset plan. I'm like, well, maybe kind of depends, you know, right. how much the loss is and whether they think there's a, any way they can get out of paying. So sure. On a more general basis, if you've got sure. somebody like somebody who's just getting started, somebody like Rick or me, or or even a group of people getting together thinking that uh -huh. they're going to start buying properties, what is kind of a good starting point for them? What should they be making a list of before they come to you? What's the best thing they can do to prepare so when they sit down with you, you get right to the point and get things going? Business model. What are your expectations? Like price point going in? What do we want to do? How long are we going to be in it? Um, like what's our selling point? Do we want to do a flip? Do we want to do a buy and hold? What are our basic market assumptions? Capital? What kind of capital are we looking at? Is it our own personal capital? Are we, in, are we going to work with other investors that we know? Are we going to look for equity investors? Are we going to look for hard money? What's the cost of that if we're going to look at the hard money? Um, so all these things come into your business analysis of a deal. You go in there and take a look at a piece of property and you say, well, can I make money doing if What's my strategy? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to rehab this, buy it with a partner, rehab it. And then six months we'll flip it and we'll make 30,000 or whatever it is. So uh, we'll, we'll just put like 15 into it and then our net will be 30 and we'll divide that in half. All right, that's fine. If, but make sure that you've got a real good understanding of your cost contained and what, like your, what kind of uh, 
rehab costs you've got and make sure that you really know going in that you've got a good analysis of what those costs are going to be because a very small error in doing that can wipe out your profit margin completely. Right. Right. So do you have, a, do you have some kind of worksheet or something like that that you give? Yeah, actually that- um, it was Al Robeson at lead funding gave me a, a checklist and they do those kinds of investments sometimes. So I actually had had a checklist with some of the items on it. And remember, I'm an attorney. I'm not a builder. Ability to walk into a building and say, okay, it's going to cost me you know, $30 a square foot to do this. And it's going to take, how much is the, the carpentry going to be? And how much for the plumbing and what kind of tabletop do we need and the color and what color schemes are going to work here and the type of tile I want and what's the neighborhood the market analysis that you want that's not my area so if you need that you really need to talk to some developers and get some people to advise you on how to evaluate those kind of things so once you've got that you come with a strategy that you're you've got Um, so what I recommend there is if you don't know how to do that, you get into a partnership arrangement with someone who does, or you get into one of those investor programs like Invest Success with Tim Emery. Once you've got that kind of basic understanding or you're partnered with someone who's got more experience doing it, then you turn around, you know exactly, okay, our rehab costs really are going to be $30,000, not 50 or 60. So we know where we're, where, what our profit margin is going to look like. So then you come to me with your, with your performa and your idea behind a business plan. I help you draft that up, put it into the partnership agreement. So now we've actually got a working agreement between the partners that says, this is how we're going to run our business. This is what we're going to do over the next year. And if we adopt a new budget on an annual basis, we'll use unanimous consent for, or supermajority in order to approve what our business plan is for the coming year going forward. Develop two more properties. We're going to get an equity loan. Each of the partners will be part of the loan package. Um, we'll rely on the creditworthiness of each of the partners, or maybe only one of them. You have to have an an approach where your analysis is. Um, so you come to me with that and I try to put that into writing in a way that will meet the expectations of, of all the partners. That's kind of how I provide values to flesh out these ideas. You might have a really great business model, but you didn't write it all down. So I help you just put all that in into the plan and then put the plan into the operating agreement and make that an enforceable provisions so that everybody can know that this is what's in writing. And so if one party disagrees, we got someone in writing that says, this is what we agreed to do. It's right here in black and white. I think that's where it gets a little scary for most people. It's yeah. it's pretty easy to at least conceptualize buying a house for X number of dollars, put Y number of dollars into it and sell it for Z sure. number of dollars and make a profit. Everybody kind of gets that, but it's that scary legal uh, kind of ambiguous nature of the law where they they intentionally write these rules to be a little bit ambiguous, kind of fit different scenarios. Yeah, and that's, that's hard to know what to expect. Right. That's, that's so. typically the way that people approach it. They just want everything flexible. But the problem is, what happens if we don't agree on everything? Then we have a problem that we can't right. solve unless right. we've written it all down. So right. the idea of approaching this from a business point of view and saying, this is what our, what our analysis was. So we're just going to put that into our business model. That's what we need to do. And once you've done that, 
Now, hopefully that will hold. Now, if things change and you want to make a change to it, as long as you've got agreement, we just change it up. But right. I just help them realize their dream. That's basically the idea. Right. Very and good. allow them to keep it from somebody stealing it from them if they yeah, fall Yeah, that's the, the main thing. It's like that you get into these unexpected problems and one unexpected landmine will ruin your whole day. For an investor coming in, it might simply be to help them analyze what role is everyone going to have? Is somebody better at finance? Is somebody better at construction? Is somebody better at like analyzing, you know, sales, like in marketing, like a realtor? What am I going to do here? Does somebody have deeper pockets? Are they got more availability to, to borrow? So how are we going to do this? And how, what's the profit structure going to be? So I help them flesh that out. So because what you don't want is too many cooks have some plan as to who's going to do what. So it sounds like, you know, insurance is a good thing, necessary thing to have, yep. you know, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. So how, how do you keep up on all the changing laws and how, how do you keep oh, up on all this stuff? That's actually um, what I, I have a subscription to NBI uh, business Institute that does a lot of um, legal seminars online seminars. So I just download them. I got like 30 of them now. I have to go through and get my 45 credit hours this year. I have to finish up. So, I mean, every time I see something that's like investor related, that's like, oh, oh, goody, goody, VRBO and, and Airbnb, uh, what do you need to know? Or it's going to be securities law primer, or it's going to be tax ramifications for the new changes for LLCs. And I'll look at those and so on. And that's kind of how I do it. I have a subscription to that. So you get national perspective. It tells me like, oh, by the way, um, what are the trends in like business litigation against that we're seeing nationwide and other attorneys will will mention all these things in the seminars. You get experts that are lecturing on all these things. And uh, I like to look at what they have to say in their areas too. It's kind of a good segue uh, there, John, because one of the things we like to ask about is, the kinds of say podcasts, the other kinds of social media, social media, whatever it might be yeah. that you like to listen to either professionally to keep up on things or just because it's of interest to you. Oh, I, I, I look online for all kinds of different things. A lot of, cause I happen to be interested in history. I look at a lot of those for fun. And then of course, friends with Manfred Chemek, who's a, a economist. And so I try to keep up also with like, what are the economic forecasts? and belonging to the John Fisher Breakfast Club, which I recommend for anybody that's looking for experts that'll give you an analysis of market where we're heading once a month in the, uh, at Dazzles. That's a nice nice group to talk to um, because they'll, there's a lot of expertise in that room. So you can sit down and talk to people and they have a lot of discussions uh, between what's, you know, how many housing starts have we got, what, what's immigration and emigration from Colorado, I mean, what's happening with our price points and so on. You get a lot of expertise. And they also have a, you know, their, their program, Invest Success for Investors, that, can, that want more online, you know, hands-on analysis. Those are do some you, of the things. Do you do any uh, light reading for fun? Oh, yeah, all the time. Um, Basically, I like to read history books, to be honest. <laughs> so I read a lot of books about like, you know, biography of Lincoln. And that's what I'm reading now. 
that's kind of like my fun thing, or maybe books about ancient Rome or who knows. I was a history major when I was in college. The best biographies I've seen were actually Nicolay and Hayes, the, his Lincoln's secretaries. They wrote a 10 volume history of Lincoln and, and the times. It's so in depth. Um, you'd never see the, the level of detail today because people just don't have the attention span to read a 10 volume, you know, 500 pages per volume, 450 pages. So you're talking thousands of pages. It's really worth checking out though. Some of them, if you're interested into that area, like it really was the author on that Nicolay and Hay Nicolay was John Nicolay was, um, biography of Abraham Lincoln. It's actually available and the first two volumes of it are available uh, from uh, Amazon uh, Kindle. You can get them for Kindle. Interesting. So it's a bio. It's just the biography of Abraham Lincoln. How about yeah. hobbies besides? Uh, oh going yeah, I like to go hiking and, and in the mountains a lot. That's one of my favorite things to do. I have different hiking trails that I like to go to and go up in the mountains and go hiking. I used to climb, but nowadays it's like getting older. Don't the knees don't really like that. Yeah. <laughs> so no 14 years anymore for me. I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Colorado is such a beautiful state to oh, get yeah. out and see. You know? Yeah, that's true. So that's kind of like my thing. I live near um, Clear Creek too. So I like to walk along the stream on the path there and do that every day pretty much football fan or general oh yeah i am a broncos fan fan and nuggets fan i guess most i like to watch them basketball hoops so they're gonna they're gonna have a great season this year i think i'm mvp nikola Jokic. it's gonna be leading them to a to a championship this season i hope so maybe the abs have lit a fire underneath oh yeah that's that's my theory you know they that the the Cronkies have the Rams and then, then they have the Avs. Now it's going to have to be the Nuggets turned. Right. right. So, John, how can people uh, get a hold of you? Okay. My telephone number, if you want to just call me anytime, I, I give free consultations to people almost every day, a little bit. Um, 720-431-1964. Or you can just look me up on my website, www.compassionatelawyer.com. And it's got all kinds of articles on there. It's got webinars, um, stuff about partnerships, some of the things that I've talked to you about. But also, I mean, I have an hour plus lecture on partnership issues on on there uh, with slides and things that I do occasionally. Um, So there's a lot of information on that site you could actually look at and find some articles on things. There's still quite a, there's still a fair amount of information on it already. And there's going to be added more. And I'll put this podcast up on that website as well. And on YouTube. So it'll, it'll be available and I'll link it on Facebook as well. So. Very good. Well, I hope uh, people take advantage and uh, you know, have you help them out. Yeah. John, thanks for being on the show. It was great. uh, Very interesting listening to you. All right. Thanks a lot guys. And appreciate it. And Feel free to contact me anytime if you want to chat. We'll do it. All right. Sounds good. All righty. Take care. Well, I have to say another great interview. Uh, John Steggy. Wow. Mr. Lawyer, man. Compassionate lawyer. Doug, what do you you think? Oh, that was fascinating. When we finished the interview with John, uh, I was saying I could have sat there and listened to him all night long. He's one of those guys that 
gets to talking about things and I forget that I'm interviewing him. I, I wouldn't make a very good like dateline kind of person, <laughs> right? There's nobody, CNN's not going to be knocking on my door to come and ask me to be an interviewer for him because I get so in, interested in what they're saying. I just want wanting to listen. Like, I, I don't want to interrupt you. Just keep talking and tell me what's on your mind because it becomes so fascinating to me. So yeah, John was one of those guys. There is a lot of overlap between what he does and what I do because what I do in, in selling insurance is to protect people in case of, of some kind of loss. I, I protect them in case they die, but um, I have partners, you know, who are in the PNC world and they protect uh, based on losses, what could be anything from catastrophes to car accidents to fires or whatever the case is. And we're all protecting them against loss. John is protecting them against loss of a different kind, but it's the same mindset. So there's a lot of overlap between the way we think, just a lot of differences in the way that we accomplish that level of protection, right? So it's interesting for me to listen to somebody like him and talk about the different things that really go into a proper legal plan for a business. Hmm. It's really fascinating to listen to him. But I asked him, you know, what, what's the most common thing? And he says, most common problem is that they're not legally prepared. They've thought about some of these financial aspects, but not the legal aspect. So they don't have the partnership agreements. They don't have that, that uh, kind of concrete understanding of what each partner's role is and that sort of thing. Uh, and then all of the little things early on in our conversation, he talked about well, what happens uh, if there's three partners and one of them says, you know, five years in, he says, I'm ready to be done with this. My understanding is we were going to quit now. The other guy says, no, this is for the rest of our life. The other guy says, well, I was going to sell out to my kid. And they both say, well, we don't want to be partners with your kid. What does he know about this? You know, now you've got this disagreement. You got to think about that stuff ahead of time. Mm -hmm. So I really thought that was interesting. And, and that kind of made me think, well, you know, what, where am I lacking? And that list is too long to go into. So anyway what did you think about that rick what did you take off take from uh, john's talk tonight yeah so i i think you know and I, I mentally understand the asset protection and through llcs and but i liked his little uh visual of little fireproof safes keeping each one categorized you know and limited if a grenade goes off in one it doesn't hurt the others and i thought that was kind of neat and asset protection is, I don't really think much about it. You know, I, I can run the numbers on how to make money, but I don't really put much thought into it, into the protection part. So that's what I think I need to work on. I even mentioned this during the podcast. I think that's a scary part of starting a business because lawyers are expensive and legal talk is it's almost like going to a, a, a doctor. They write prescriptions. They write these things in Latin. Nobody wants to talk to the lawyer because nobody understands what the lawyer is saying. And they're charging us a lot of money. And it's just something that is scary and nobody really wants to be a part of. So that was an interesting aspect of how he approaches things, which is he's compassionate. He understands these things. He's not terribly expensive. You know, he can help you get through that more complicated portion that you don't want to deal with. You know, something that you don't want to talk about. You don't want to think about it. I you know, it's like, I want to keep a positive attitude. I don't like to go and think about all the bad stuff that can happen. Right. Nobody does. If I got a beneficiary, how much am I, uh, how much am I worth that I'm alive versus dead? Now we have to quantify. So it, it tries, you try to be a little funny with it, but it's still pretty morbid. Right. Right. So, yeah. But it's a necessary thing to, to think about. It is. It's a necessary thing to think about. So. 
yeah, this this conversation with John was great. I hope that uh, our listeners will take that uh, some of this to heart. And if they have legal questions, I'll reach out to him because he's very willing to have a conversation with someone. Yep. yep. So, All right, Doug, why don't we wrap it up? And can you take us out of here? I can. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this really fascinating podcast. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I do. Keep talking about how much I found it interesting, but uh, I really did. So thank you, John, again, for your time with us tonight. Um, thank you for shining a light on something that is is uh, complicated and frightening, but making it seem a little less frightening because you got a, a compassionate lawyer to whom you can turn for some assistance. So we thank you for that. We are uh, grateful to listeners. We hope to be back on the air soon with another podcast. Until then, take care of yourselves. Have a great evening. Thank you for listening to the Secret Sauce for Success show, where we find the secret ingredients for success. We all want to be successful in life. So let's break down the steps it takes to get there and learn from other people's journeys. We hope that through the stories you hear on our show, you will find success in your life.